What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Not a test. This is rock and roll. The guitar duo Rodrigo y Gabriela went from headbanging in Mexico to busking in Dublin to playing festivals for hundreds of thousands around the world. I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Rodrigo Sanchez and Gabriela Quintero talk about their career and play some brand new songs. Then Greg takes a trip to the desert island. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week, Jim, we have a great show in that we have Rodrigo y Gabriela in probably the most non-traditional venue that we have ever recorded a band in. This is very close to the roots of this Mexican duo. They they were street buskers, and I remember seeing groups like the Violent Femmes in, sure. in Milwaukee, you know, uh, coming up on the street corners, or Billy Bragg at South by Southwest doing his thing with an acoustic guitar, but never in a barrel house, you know, uh, by our sponsor, Goose Island Beer, where this wonderful brew is being aged. A testament to our professionalism that we were not <laughs> distracted by that ocean of beer. We're going to get to that in a minute, but first, some music news. Greg, there's no mistaking those two voices. That's the Everly Brothers with their first big hit, Bye Bye Love. We need to pay tribute to the great Phil Everly, the younger brother in that duo, who died on January 3rd at the age of 74. I think it's safe to say rock and roll wouldn't be what it is today if the Everly Brothers hadn't drawn the connections between country music and hillbilly folk and rock and roll, right? An incredible string of hits in the mid to late 50s and again in the early 60s that would inspire all of the great harmony bands of the 60s. Simon and Garfunkel, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, they all not only borrowed the Everly approach to harmony, but they covered Everly's songs. And then later in the 60s, when country rock was being born, and that whole California sound, again, the Everly's were an influence via their 1968 record, Roots. The boys started, the story starts here in Chicago, although they later moved to Iowa. They weren't always the tightest of brothers, as is the case with many rock and roll brothers. There was a period where they fell out in the 70s, but they always came back to each other. And often singing in unison, singing together, but with Phil, the younger brother, taking the higher note. We're going to play a song that Phil wrote for the group. You know, the hits are endless, Wake Up Little Susie, All I Have to Do is Dream, Kathy's Clown, Bye Bye Love, which we just heard. I want to play When Will I Be Loved, which the brothers, of course, sang on, but Phil Everly also wrote. Here it is on Sound Opinions.
When Will I Be Loved from 1960, the Everly Brothers, in tribute to the great Phil Everly, dead at the age of 74. You know, Jim, we just recently reviewed the Nora Jones and Billy Joe Armstrong collaboration on an entire album of Everly Brothers songs from a few weeks ago. Uh, We didn't like that record much, but actually there were two more records by contemporary artists entirely consisting of Everly Brothers songs that came out last year. One by Don McCarthy and Will Oldham called What the Brothers Sang that is very good and another one by the Chapin sisters. to Sound Opinions, and that's a song called Santo Domingo by the Mexican duo Rodrigo y Gabriela. Rodrigo Sanchez and Gabriela Quintero grew up in Mexico City and began playing together when they were in their teens. Now, in the early 90s, they were both members of a heavy metal band, Tierra Acida, and eventually broke off to develop their own special brand of guitar rock, which mixes everything from traditional flamenco music to heavy metal, and they ended up on the streets of Dublin. They were busking there, and then they worked their way up to start opening for top Irish acts like David Gray and Damien Rice. Now, they're a duo that's a worldwide phenomenon selling over a million albums. Rodrigo E. Gabriela joined Greg and me for a special acoustic recording in a most unusual setting, the aging barrel house for Goose Island Beer here in Chicago. We began the conversation with Gabriela and Rodrigo's early connection. Well, since the very beginning was a connection with music, and then eventually we, we played together in the same band, Tierra Acida, and, um, and then we quit the band and we started to play with the acoustic guitars. We always did play the acoustic guitars before. We always did, even in the band. But at that time it was just a decision to just do something entirely different and go to somewhere else different and experience different things all together. I'm curious about the process of you learning to play your instruments, because you play at a very high level. Well, in my case, um, yeah, I think it was just through practice and practice. I mean, we, I didn't really take lessons, no more than 10, you know? So it was, um, I was very young when my brother was um, like five, I mean, five years older, so he was pretty influential. And we, we were playing together you know, since I was like 11, 12 already with acoustic guitars, pretending to have a band and all that. So we spent hours. And then when we met and we, we kept doing the same, we spent hours playing and trying to, to become something, you know. And when we didn't in Mexico and we left and we went to Europe, we didn't care. We were playing in the streets and we played for hours, you know. And I think that's the only thing, just practice and practice like sport, you know. It's, it's, it's the same It wasn't way. work. You loved having that guitar Absolutely, in your hands. Yeah. But Gabriela, i got to ask you, I'm curious about the reaction. Here's a, a young woman playing 
this shredding metal guitar, you know. <laughs> How was that for you? What were your role models? What inspired you to, to go in that direction? Well, it, to me, it was always music itself, not just like metal, metal, because in my family, they always loved all sorts of musics. Personally, I, I tried to kind of get some lessons, but I didn't have money at that time, so I, I took two or three, and then I couldn't pay anymore, and everything else was not very accessible. As me and Rodrigo went to do an exam to a proper academy and classical music, and we both were rejected, like, no. You know? <laughs> That's the best thing that ever happened to you. <laughs> you know, the most available thing you can do when you have no money and... The guitar is a cheap instrument, and also, and even though I didn't want to do, I didn't want to become like a guitar hero per se, I admire much more a band as a whole, you know, like Pantera with a good lead guitar player in it, instead of the typical metal only play really fast. But no, and I was never so interested in playing super fast. Mm-hmm. And that's why I also love the flamenco music too, because flamenco music is so such an independent thing. You can play it on your own, you can do your own rhythms. Well, we're here with uh, Rodrigo and Gabriela at the Goose Island Barrel House uh, in Chicago, and would you mind playing a song for us? Oh, yeah. No problem. <laughs> what are we going to hear? I don't know, we're going to play probably something, something new. That's where we are kind of in tour, we're kind of testing new material, so let's see what we can play.
That was Rodrigo y Gabriela performing a yet-to-be-named or released song live on Sound Opinions at the Goose Island Barrel House. We'll have more with the duo in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And then it's my turn to drop a quarter into the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and you've been listening to our conversation with the members of the rock duo Rodrigo y Gabriela. They treated us to a special live performance at the Goose Island Beer Barrel House here in Chicago. Now, Rodrigo y Gabriela are just two people playing acoustic guitars, but they create this really full sound. They sound like a complete rock band. Here, Gabriela Quintero talks about how her style developed after playing in a traditional heavy metal band. No, I started as a guitarist yeah. in the band, and um, I used to play with the Marshall and mm-hmm. with a lot of distortion and the wah-wah pedal, and I used to be a plectorist. But then eventually when me and Rodrigo decided to quit the band and travel the world, because that, that was the, the sort of like condition, travel and play, regardless of whatever, you know. And we promised ourselves not to work in anything else but play guitar. Well, first we went to Mexico at the South Pacific to play in the hotels like Bozanovas and things like this. And um, we were just playing for the sunrise, happy hour sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we were metalheads and we didn't have enough uh, uh, material to play that, that type of little gig. And uh, so we used to throw some Slayer and... Metallica, like all the ballads and stuff like this and that. And that kind of got us going for a few months uh, with the tips of people, you know, tourists and stuff. And then eventually we got some money, we went to Europe and we decided to do the same, but for the sake of play and travel. So we started playing in the streets. And because we, we had the band in our heads, to me, was like, where is the drum and where is the, the bass lines and where is it, all of these things? And I knew that you can develop some rhythms watching some of the flamenco guys, so I tried to guess what the flamenco guys were playing. So I tried to just to imagine and create in my own rhythm. Then I developed 
did some sort of like rhythm and the rhythm section and I became like the drummer of this band. wind up with a style completely your own. You've mentioned going to Europe several times. It's like the Motorcycle Diaries or something. It's almost yes. a novel. You guys wind up in Dublin. You don't speak English at that point? No, not you're, me. <laughs> you're busking on the street. I mean, that's an extreme leap of faith. And there's a huge audience there for Mexi- music from Mexico City, too. Right. I'm sure you know that. So I, I, you, know, it's like, <laughs> you know, usually people just sort of wind their way up the coast, end up in California, but you guys end right. up in Dublin. It was like an accident, really. It was a friend of ours used to live there, and uh, we wanted to go to Europe. And uh, she said Dublin was a good place to, to go, and they were... Pretty, pretty musical, you know, and friendly. And you meet Damien Rice there? Yes. Yes. And yes, he kind of leads to some connections, right? Well, yeah, we, we met him on the street, actually, when we were doing some... We played in Grafton Street. It's a famous uh, street in, in Dublin. And we used to play there. And he came every every time we played. It was this hippie guy. With, so he sat... <laughs> Just like in front and close his eyes like this, and then uh, did he tip well? <laughs> he did he no, tip? But we we became good friends at that time with him, and then he got this ambition to become us. This and we at that time were like we don't care. We are like this hak- hakuna matata, you know. It's like I don't care as long as we made the, this money for the rent and whatever, we were drinking a lot of beer. And so then years after, we ran into him, and he was very he was very famous in Ireland. So he invited us to do support for his gigs, and that's the kind of way we shifted from playing in bars, in the streets, and whatever else, to do proper gigs. Was it original music, or what, were you, what kind of music were you playing well, at that time? Covers and... and a couple. Of, that was the time when we started writing around music, but yeah, it was. Uh, we were playing covers from Santana to Eric Clapton to until we discovered. I mean, we wrote one song and then we were playing on the streets, and we noticed that people was you know they were giving us more money when we were playing our song, probably because we were probably more focused on it or whatever. And then we kept writing just because of that reason. I said, okay, we might get some more money. You know? <laughs> from everybody not, except not from Dave for Damien. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was always kind of going to be a duo thing. Was that kind of set in stone in some ways? Well, it's not that we, we just closed our minds to that, but it was just what it was happening that way. I don't know how I can describe it, just to go and leave the... Co- well, there was a year that we changed the country three times. We went to Spain, and then we said, no, now we go to Denmark, and then we went to England, and like this, you know. So we were absolutely crazy, because now I see it at this moment. It's like, how can we do all these crazy things, you know? And mm. we, it was, a, that's also that ingredient. So you put out a, a self-made record at that point, right? It was, a, right. I, I guess, a demo? Was yeah. it? Did you actually get into a recording studio to do that? or Actually, Damien lent us his... Uh, recording equipment that he had bought to record his own album and we just hired a flat which was empty and we just recorded there 
I'd seen you play, I think, in the mid-2000s, I guess, but once you had the first official deal. Right. But then I'd heard, you know, that you had been doing festivals already at this point. You'd already yeah. been playing European festivals. I mean, that's a pretty good deal getting you know putting out basically a homemade record and and getting festival invitations well it was because we met our current one of our current manager we met him through damien and he opened this new label independent label called ruby works but it was he got his own little success and he got us to play in good festivals in europe and so it was a good a starting point i guess what was the reception like when you would get up there? I mean, people were probably used to seeing rock bands, and then they see two people get up there with acoustic guitars, and they go, oh. <laughs> and then they see you play, and then it was probably something, a different reaction. It was great. I think um, there was a confusion at the start. Uh, we were invited to play Walmart Festival, you know, all the world music festivals? Yeah. Peter Gabriel's Walmart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we soon realized the same as, as them, somehow, that we didn't really belong to the world music scene. We, and then suddenly we were just playing the Glastonbury's and all that, the rock festivals around Europe. And it was, uh, I think it was um, important for us to, to go through that before we, we got signed in America, because then when we came here, we knew exactly where to focus, you know? And I remember we had several meetings with our record label to, you know, to explain how things were in Europe. And yeah, and, and, and soon enough, we were playing Coachella and all the rock festivals here. And it was, I think it was a, a good way to introduce ourselves. Do you think American audiences, or, or the American industry more properly, is obsessed with this notion of putting people in boxes? <laughs> well, I think I, it's all I, over I, the place. I think it's all over the world, but really? we, we all do it. Is it some, something we can't contain to do? And it is important like, for us to say, no, we, we cannot label ourselves, because if we say we play this and this, we'll be... Like everybody will be watching now. What are you going to do? You know, now you're gonna play this. Mm. You're not supposed to play this. You know, <laughs> and I think the important thing in this this project, I guess, is just to our proposal is whatever we play, we're gonna play it in two acoustic guitars, and that's it. It can be a, a metal album or it can be a tango music album. We don't know. The way that we we write music is also being influenced by all these many styles of, of music. You know. And we've been invited to rock festivals and also world music festivals, mm -hmm. which is great. Our jazz festivals also. So we kind of make this border with the different styles, which is, is really convenient to us, you know, because <laughs> we get to play everywhere, basically. <laughs> well, the last studio album, Area 52, five records into your career and, and a phenomenal collaboration. You were talking about how we decided a long time ago, okay, it's just going to be the two of us. But you're working with this, uh, this Cuban orchestra, right? Yeah. And, and it was very important to you to record in Cuba. Why? Well, we were going to get probably the, you know, the best feeling of it. And uh, we wanted to record with uh, Cuban musicians that were based in Cuba and not the ones that you know, left Cuba and they became suddenly like superstars. We were lucky because um, at the time we were kind of working with the producer, with Peter Asher and with Alex Wilson, which is the guy who made all the arrangements for the, for the orchestra. Uh, we didn't expect that, but that's what, in a way, we were looking for. And yeah, and, and it, was, it was interesting to absorb the whole culture. Was there a, a message you wanted to make, too? I mean, it's, it's such, you know, 
half a century after the Cuban, the Bay of Pigs. You know, it's still this incredibly rich culture that is shut off from so much of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Was that did that was that part of it? Well, I guess it, it came down a little bit for me more personal because in like at least my grand my granddad he was a big fan of of Cuban music, like Benny Moré, Pérez Prado. And this is what's before uh, Fidel Castro. It's all this great music. It was just music. And when we came to Europe and we started to play with all, just jamming with different musicians, most of them, Irish and Scottish, they've been to Cuba already and said, ah, Cuba's fantastic, you should go. And all that. So me and Rod, we kind of said, well, when we, whatever we go to Cuba, we're going to go and play. It wasn't just focused on politics or anything like that. It was just mainly focused on, on purely music. And um, when Rod came up with this idea, we said, well, this is the perfect excuse to go to Cuba, the, 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 this trip we always wanted to do, and, and to make a musical trip, you know, and just to get to know Cuba. But we didn't know Cuba because we stayed the 15 days at the studio. So, <laughs> no, not even the city. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. Uh, we're here at the Goose Island Barrel House in Chicago. And uh, Rodrigo and Gabriela are our guests. We would love it if you could play another song for yes, us. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you so much.
Rodrigo and Gabriela on Sound Opinions at the Goose Island uh, Barrel House in Chicago. Just a couple of more questions for you guys. And coming over to the first album, the first official album, what attracted me, well, among the things that attracted me to it was, uh, well, oh, John Leckie produced this. He doesn't just take anybody on. He's worked with McCartney and Lennon and Radiohead, and, and he's working with you guys. But I'm curious how, how, that, how that came about and, and what you wanted to get from Leckie producing your record. Well, originally, we didn't want to have any producer at all because with Stubborn and we liked it to, to do our own thing. And so our management and the record company were pushing us to have a producer and I said, no. We convinced them to, to send us back to Mexico and record it there in Mexico in, in the beach. And um, so we took some gear with us and our Irish crew which that was the terrible mistake because Mexican Irish in Mexico is a lot of beer, so we didn't record anything in <laughs> <from> the, <laughs> the period we spent there. So at the end of the day, we rang our management and said, we have no album. Uh, sorry, now what are we going to do? And then our management said, we need to find a producer urgently. So um, John Naki was interested because, as you said, he's very picky and... He kind of liked it. He liked the idea. He said he first saw the the titles, like Tamakun and all this, and he was like, this is different. This sounds different to him. So um, we met him in Dublin, and and he was delighted to work. He's a workaholic. He loves to work in the studio, and we too. So we went sent to England in Bath, in a beautiful Roman nation city, and we recorded the thing in 15 days. And it was it was fantastic. We had to just go and play. Nothing else, no beers, <laughs> nothing like that. It was just work. Did he have any input at all as to what you recorded? Because you did like a cover of Orion, right? The Metallica mm-hmm. track. And I think, uh, what was that? Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> was You did your version of that song, which is very <laughs> a very interesting version of that song, if yeah. people haven't heard that. that discussed did you sort of here's what we're doing record us or yeah. did he have some input no we already had the, the tracks in place so he was just there to make sure we got the, the best takes 
Well, it's interesting that Greg's asking about that first album, because I've read a couple of interviews you guys have done recently. You're gearing up to record album number six. And you've both said, I think, in different places that you want to go back to what you were doing in the beginning, but do it completely differently. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you talking about? I mean, uh, going back to the fact that we are two guitarists only and not going to, you know, to pursue any anything related with having a, you know, an orchestra behind us or whatever. But different in terms of not um, trying to, to find different sounds for two guitars. If otherwise we would sound the same. I mean, we are in a way limited, you know. But that's a challenge, and that's a good challenge for us. Well, you, I mean, one of the things you were doing was almost like what Tony Levin has done with King Crimson and Peter Gabriel, that weird instrument he plays the stick, where it seems like he's going up and down simultaneously. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It was almost this circular pattern. Oh, cool. That's That's another, I never thought about it that way. But yes, I guess if you look at everything, everything has influence of everything, and uh, what the idea behind is, what he said, we want to do it differently, I guess, differently musically speaking. Like, it just after the works with the, the, with the soundtracks, the Pirates of the Caribbean, and then we did Puss and Boots, and then the Philharmonics, and the Cuban Orchestra. Uh, that's some sort of, has to take you out of your comfort zone and just expand the way you play things and the way you perceive music. Alex Skolnick of Testament records with you in uh, 2009. You're at the uh, Obama White House in 2010. Which was cooler, Skolnick or Obama? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm playing, Alex is my friend. You know? Yeah. So he became my friend. Obama, I don't think we became friends. So. <laughs> well, but he was very question. friendly. Yeah, he was very friendly. He's going to have more free time on yeah, his hands probably. soon. So maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe later. Yes, maybe. Who knows? Both they were, you know, I mean, different experiences. But going to, to the White House, it was, it was very interesting. We thought we were going to play in the corner of some sort of like corporative cocktail party and we're just going to play it. <laughs> But because there was a lot of secrecy, we didn't know, our management didn't know. It was these calls and mm. they hung and there was no explanation whatsoever. So we, we were on tour, long tour, very tired. We, we came there, passports, and then now you two guys, who, who are the musicians, these two? We, they took us somewhere else and suddenly we were at White House, like working, oh, lovely, lovely. And then... They took us to this room where it was full of photographers and the, and Mr. President <laughs> and the wife. You know, it's like nice to meet you. You know, we didn't expect it at all. And then we got a photo that me and Roder like like this in the photo. <laughs> Keep it there. So he didn't get a chance to tell him that he really should fix the situation. <laughs> we didn't have at the, the border, time. what the hell is wrong? <laughs> totally, we didn't Next have time. The, next time we'll yeah. do. <laughs> We 
we got to wrap it up, but it's been an absolute pleasure, Thank Rodrigo, you. Gabriella, having you here at, at Goose Island amid all this fine beer. <laughs> and now we can go drink some. Thanks Thank for being here. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you so thanks, much, Thanks guys. for having us. <laughs> To watch our taping with Rodrigo E. Gabriella at the Goose Island Beer Barrel House, visit soundopinions.org. And to make a comment on the air, call 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Greg drops the first quarter of 2014 into the Desert Island Jukebox. together. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and it is time for him to paddle out to the desert island and play us a song he can't live without. Thank you, Jim. We have some sad business to take care of because over the holidays, in addition to losing Phil Everly, we also lost Benjamin Curtis of Secret Machines. Ben died in late December at the age of 35 from cancer, but he was in this great, great band, Secret Machines, that you and I both loved. Absolutely. We had them on the show. Uh, you know, people always talk about where the great rock bands gone, man, and I say... You know, Secret Machines was one of those bands. They mm-hmm. never really got their due in their time together, but they made a couple of really good albums. Curtis and his brother, Brandon, were uh, part of that Dallas scene in the late 90s. Benjamin was actually in a band called Tripping Daisy that made some noise there. And then they moved to New York in the early 2000s. Uh, Brandon and Benjamin, the two brothers, and their cousin, Josh Garza, forming this trio. They had a heavier, some people call it even a progressive type of sound that distinguished them from what was happening in the New York scene at the time. You know, the Strokes were ascendant and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, bands like that. They had a different sound, but uh, heavy nonetheless and terrific. Connecting back to those Oklahoma freaks that you love so much, the Flaming Lips, when they were really good, late 80s, early 90s, and also a little bit of that Mercury Rev kind of, you know, freaks lost in the wilderness kind of sound, you know, very psychedelic, very trippy, but at the core of it, 
these great songs. As, as Ben said, you know, people would mistake us for this experimental progressive band, but you could play our songs on acoustic guitars. I mean, it was only two or three chords. We were writing pop songs in the middle of all of this. Their debut album, I highly recommend. It's called Now, Here Is Nowhere. That title sort of reflects the way they felt about being in New York and sort of disconnected from everything during this period of time. And the track I'm going to play in tribute to Benjamin Curtis, Nowhere Again from Secret Machines on Sound Opinions. Cellophane flowers never happen for me. Sleeping the day off, watching the night fall. was Nowhere Again by Secret Machines in tribute to Ben Curtis, dead at the age of 35. Nice Desert Island pick, Mr. Cott. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a real treat for Beatles fans and any kind of fan of rock and roll. Mark Lewison has written the definitive Beatles biography, and we have him as our guest. As always, Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Special thanks to Goose Island and Adam Yaffe. 
Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Jake Smith. And I gotta tell you about this. Over the holidays, Hotel California by the Eagles became the world's largest vinyl record. 407 foot replica built by a 75 person crew <laughs> atop the Forum in Inglewood, California. Why? I don't know. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, uh, my name is Amon, first-time caller, long-time listener from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I realize that making year-end lists, it's very difficult to include all genres and everything, but I'm always surprised at how many don't include EDM, electronic dance music. Party without me. A party without me, a party without me, I make the beats and make you dance. A party without me, a party without me, a party without me, I want to see you raise your hands. Regardless of your opinions on the genre, some of the most successful artists in the world right now are EDM artists like DJ Tiesto and David Guetta, Calvin Harris, some of these like really, really big artists. Thanks. My name is Greg Kelcher. I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. And I heard you guys talking about some of your favorite psychedelic albums of 2013. And I was a little surprised that I didn't hear any mention of Dead Meadow. They come out of the uh, Washington, D.C. area. But they released a great album this year called Warble Womb. And it really showcases just a very rich blend of influences kind of tied together with this just awesome psychedelic groove. Your 2014 is going well and continues to go well. Thanks a lot. Guys, it's Heather calling from New Hampshire. It is New Year's Eve, and I'm calling in with a last-minute favorite album of the year, Janelle Monet, Electric Lady. The thing I love about this album, it is all over the place. It's heavy strings, it's heavy guitars, it's smooth, and then it's got like this weird Star Trek-like vocal thing mixed with, you know, Prince just, like, totally wailing on the guitar. It has Erica Badu. It has Esmeralda Spaulding. It is just this huge tour de force, 
And I think this is something that just kind of transcends all genres. And it really makes you want to shake your booty. And I think Janelle Monet knocked it out of the park in 2013. Thanks, guys. Hey, Jimmy, Greg. This is Alan calling from Los Angeles. I was just listening to the Slayer episode, and it was great. And you know what? I was in college during the whole PMRC Tipper Gore thing. And I remember listening to my dead Kennedys and watching Jello Biafra and just riddling about how terrible this was. I have small children now, and I'm not any more conservative, but it occurs to me that we're okay with movies having ratings, and we get really upset if our music has the same thing. Why not have ratings on record? Maybe I'm a fuddy-duddy now, but it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. All right, guys. Rock on. We're not gonna take it. No, we ain't gonna take it. We're not gonna take it anymore. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. We're not gonna take it anymore.